Welcome to the Other Border Wall podcast. We are a multicultural group of artists in conversation as part of our ongoing creative resistance to borders. Here we speak of the bridges and walls we encounter. We are Taryn Adia, Leah Patgorski, and Jennifer Nagel Myers. Just saying your name, title, and how you like to be addressed. Sure. Um, I'm Ann Craybell, the Richard M. Scape Director and CEO. My preferred pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, and yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think I answered well. Yay. Yeah. And, uh, how long have you been here at the West Morgan? I started in August 2018, so approaching my third third year. That's wonderful. And we met, I guess. In 2019, was it? No, yes, it was 2019, because yeah. um, this, this exhibition actually would have opened a year ago, May 2020, mm-hmm. and we, because of COVID, um, delayed it by a year. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm so excited that it got to open, and here we are. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I guess we'll start by having you take us through the exhibit. Okay. And then we can maybe find a place we can just sit and then ask you like more detailed questions. Perfect. All right, great. Sense? Yeah. So Border Cantos is an exhibition uh, that I actually worked with before in my previous role at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. This is a smaller iteration of um, that exhibition, but it's a it's a really incredible collaboration between a photographer, Richard Mizrak, who has documented, um, you know, lots of different landscapes, but he was very fascinated by the Mexican-American border. And after he saw a performance by Guillermo Galindo, he asked Guillermo if he would collaborate with him to create this um, Border Cantos Sonic Border uh, exhibition. So Richard, was inspired by an Ezra Pound poem. So that's where the cantos comes from. So there's eight different cantos in this exhibition. So Richard was inspired by an Ezra Pound poem. So there's eight different uh, cantos in the exhibition. And then Guillermo uh, was very much inspired by the Mayan calendar. And so the composition that he created um, follows that, um, except for rather than in days, it's, it's in minutes. So it's a 260 minute composition uh, where the instruments that are playing are actually f- made from found objects uh, mm-hmm. along the, the border that they both discovered in their, in their travels. So shall we go in? Yeah. Okay. So the, this is one of the cantos, which is just really documenting the wall, but also very um, different types of walls that you find. And here you can see um, where the wall just bifurcates a, a, a town, right, between the Mexican and the American border. But what Richard also discovered in his travels that oftentimes the wall doesn't, is not really delineated right on the border. It's actually um, completely on U.S. territory. So it'll, it'll bifurcate, you know, the U.S. from the U.S. <laughs> um, and he's really interested in just, like, what this means as a political symbol um, and you know, less so as an actual effective policy tool. Um, really interested in human intervention on um, the earth, and you know, so what this wall does and how it uh, disrupts, you know, natural migration of animals and and all other other kinds of things. 
Um, but then both of them are just very interested in the journey of um, the migrant. So they really wanted people to have a very uh, human and empathic experience in here to imagine this place that most, most of us have never been to before. I hear some of Guillermo's sounds. Yeah. Coming. Yeah, so Guillermo's um, sounds, I think hearing them while you're looking at the photographs really brings some like energy and life to the border sounds that you would have heard. And so here you can see it, it almost looks as though it's like a Richard Serra, right? Out in, the, out in the desert, it almost looks like it is a, a piece of art. And then especially when you're looking at um, this one, which is just such a small, I mean, clearly this is a symbol, it's not a tool, such a small um, piece of the wall. And he thought perhaps they're, it's under construction but it um, turns out that two years later, he came back and the only thing different was this little patch of grass around it. So, wow. yeah, so not quite sure why it's there, um, what its function is, what its purpose is. Uh, it's really just like a, lo a high fence. Yeah. It's just like the shape of an L. In the yeah. It's kind of desert landscape. With... Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's really a lot like public art. Right, <laughs> right, right. And, and so again, you know, a lot of times um, longer stretches of this wall are, they're going to actually disrupt ranches and communities. Um, you can see in the photograph over here, this is someone's backyard in Brownsville, Texas. So, yeah. Grass and a cute little white house, and then this huge fence. Right, right in your right in your backyard, right? And uh, and then um, so different different sections of the wall are made differently, um, you know, like such as the tall kind of picket, but then you can see this section of wall here with these like layers of grate. Um, there's actually a section of wall that was made with. Uh, Land, metal from landing strips from the Vietnam era. It was repurposed. And so that, we are actually having a sculpture that's going to be here that has a piece of that wall that's coming next week. Okay. So just that piece of the portion of the wall weighs about 800 pounds and it's hanging from a, a gallows that Guillermo constructed and he plays it as though it's a drum. So two large-scale sculptures that will be included in this exhibition, but this is one of the few images that Richard has actually depicted people, but you know, it's, she's very obscured, but it's a section of the wall where family members will come and reconnect with each other. They can, you know, between the two sides. Um, and so that's another really interesting idea in this exhibition too, is that the wall can't stop sound. So Guillermo's kind of, you know, the sonic um, boundaries, it just doesn't apply. And, this is the, and it, to me, this image actually looks like something or someone's being imprisoned. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Especially the kind of very old um, metal. And just the small, small pieces, it's creating this tiny little grid. Yeah, and the, and the sort of thicker, like, jail bars yeah. in holding it all together. So another um, part of the cantos is around water. And uh, there's humanitarian groups that actually place water out in the desert. That's a, a very, um, you know, real threat, dehydration. 
And so they plant these flags in the ground and put um, water in these barrels. And the flags deteriorate very quickly. And so this organization will go out and replenish the water and replace the flags. And then they've sent the flags back to Guillermo to use almost as a canvas. And so he's created musical compositions on them, designs. He has um, a turtle that's really referencing a more indigenous culture and, and time there. And, uh, you know, really just, I think, beautifully crafted. There's um, the first one um, in the front actually has a Spanish colonial map imprinted on it. And then you can see here the, just the, the, the ephemera, the, the belongings um, that people find discarded along the way. And um, oftentimes there's belongings of children who are making this journey. So here we have a little teddy bear. Um, there's often lots of clothes found um, because when crossing a body of water, dry clothes in a trash bag, take off the wet clothes, just leave them on the shore. Um, and so they, they did find lots of clothing as well. And so all of this is documented um, not, in, not in progress of people crossing, but a documentation of the fact that someone crossed here. Yeah, or just the border itself. So, he, so Richard wouldn't necessarily know any specific individual where they crossed, but he, he did go through California, Arizona, and Texas along the border to document that place, um, and, and specifically the wall itself. And so he did encounter um, Border Patrol. Um, some were really curious about what he was doing and even helpful. Um, some were a little more, you know, you need to get out of here. Um, but one of the things that he found uh, with the Border Patrol's this process of tire dragging. So they'll hook these tires up to the back of a vehicle and drag it across um, where you would track footprints. Mm -hmm. And so they can, they can make a, a determination as to how fresh that crossing would have been. It's, it's actually just a very simple Native American technique um, for tracking. Mm -hmm. So that, yep. Then they, can see. then they can see if there's fresh footprints that come through. Um, and they would know the timing between when they smoothed it and when those footprints came. So another uh, sculpture that we'll be getting really speaks to these two images where there's a tire, there's a boot, there's a hand. It's all kind of playing like a drum, quite tall, about seven feet tall. Wow. So. And how, do you know how often they, they do this? Well, they're, they're done with this project. So um, Richard is now globetrotting, <laughs> doing other, you know, he's, He's again really interested in human interaction on the environment. Um, so, so this is um, a completed project between the two of them, but it's still touring in many different places. And Guillermo is a, a professor as well, so he has um, just a practice of teaching uh, and his his own performance okay. and discipline. Yeah. And then this is a target practice that the Border Patrol uses that Richard basically snuck onto. Um, and you can just see thousands and thousands of shotgun shell casings. And those are actually part of a musical instrument in Guillermo's installation as well. And so they're target practicing to shoot human beings? Um, 
I couldn't speak directly to that, you know. So, I mean, clearly it's, it's the, a, a similar target practice as you would see in many law enforcement training areas where there is a, fig, a silhouette of a figure as the target. Um, you know, as general practice, I don't think that that's the, the first line of defense, but, yeah. but it, it clearly is. I mean, this is a law enforcement body, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. it's, it can be a real threat. The scale of the photographs is so, so large that they—it's—it's it's one thing to see them, and then another thing is you get closer, it becomes the only thing that you can kind of experience, which is really wonderful. Yeah. Like you, so you really feel like you're entering the landscape. Which, yeah. Like for me, like it's really hard for me to stand here in front of this. Yeah. Target practice because I'm just envisioning police brutality, especially as as an African American woman, and just feeling. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah, there's a tension in his photographs, right? So like you, you look at this behind you with the tires and it's, it's like this incredible sunset and this, it's beauty and it's immersive. And then you have scenes like this um, that are incredibly uncomfortable. So I think for a lot of people coming into this exhibition, there's just a huge range of emotions that you experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's powerful. And then, um, these are effigies that nobody really knows what their function or purpose is, uh, if they're symbols, if they're signals. Um, but, you know, looking at this with a, a colleague a while back, one of the first things he said to me was that hands up, don't shoot. Mm -hmm. It was, it, you know, that, that's just what really spoke to him. And, and like, because the arms are just so elongated with the, um, branches that they use to kind of create, I guess, like a scarecrow-like armature uh, and <clears throat> dressed them. I mean, this is yeah, like, this right. is, it's just strange. Like, what, what is their purpose? What is their function? And they're really beautiful sculptural, <laughs> but very emotional. Yeah. It's like, I don't know, is it a scarecrow? I don't know if they're dancing, if there's other kind of indigenous connections to it. Yeah, I don't know if it's a welcoming or a warning. It's hard to tell. Yeah, or a memorial or, yeah. And then um, this is a, an image of the wall that just goes right into the ocean, right? So you can just swim right around it. Um, but then there's pages of a Bible that yeah. he found um, right there and that Guillermo's actually incorporated into one of his instruments as well. So just the idea of making that journey, having your Bible. Yeah, and I think, you know, for, oh, actually, I'm gonna show you a quote because I think that really helps explain where the two of them are coming from. So behind here, we have a map of the world and we wanted visitors to share their migration stories with us. And it's also a place to just kind of decompress if needed. But Guillermo, what he said was, um, we're artists, we're not politicians. We want to give people the experience of the border and to get acquainted with the immigrant's journey, to make it palpable, to make it human. So, like, they're like, we don't have a policy suggestion. <laughs> you know, we, that's, we don't know. But we just, like, you know, I think just by, by bringing that 
human experience to it helps inform all the decision making um, that goes into uh, immigration. But that, at least that's the hope. Yeah. And it seems to me that everyone has some type of story of entering a place, migrating, moving. Just, that, that's the human experience. Right, right. So that how, would you, how, how do you want to be welcomed mm -hmm. if you go to a new place? And that kind of sense of just kindness Mm -hmm. Seems like a basic thing. Right, right. Um, and it's, yeah. This exhibition that we've been able to do bilingual translation. So it came to us with Spanish um, translation, and then we, with the loans we had, we were able to work with a translator to um, add those in as well. But it's something that you know we'd like to be able to continue. But this, this is just a, a didactic. Um, to give visitors a sense of where the actual wall is and how, how impossible it would be to do <laughs> the entire, you know, I mean, the whole border, there's just very small stretches. Um, and there's lots of natural barriers there as well. But then there's also just major policy that informed um, immigration policy today. And it really, really starting with the colonization of Texas and the annexation of Texas and the Mexican-American War before the Civil War. So, so, so much of this is tied to so many other um, expansion of slavery. So, so many other um, conflicts in American history. And so we, we wanted to bring people up to um, one of the last pieces of major legislation, which was 2006, the Secure Fence Act, which authorized additional miles of, of fencing. Guillermo's um, instruments, he, he does play these live, but for the purposes of the installation, he recorded. And as I said, it's a 260-minute composition based on the Mayan calendar. And so he recorded it and then calibrated them, all of the instruments to play together electronically. So that's why you see carpeting in here, because everything is wired under the ground. Uh, and then all of the pedestals have the speakers in them. So as you navigate and move through, you just feel very different, hear very different sounds. And so everything is, most everything that we're seeing made from elements that were found at the border. Yes, so I referenced the Bible. Here's the instrument that has the Bible pages incorporated into, um, you know, the, it looks, the topography looks very mountainous. Um, Right, right. So it's so fun to come in here because it is different every time. You know, it's just at a different point in the composition that I've never heard. Um, this is the pinata with the shotgun casings. 
Yeah. Yeah. And then that is, they did not remove an effigy, but they used clothing that they found to, you know, Guillermo created his own effigy um, as a musical instrument as well. You know, when you first see it, it's called forensic piano scroll, so it does look like one of those automatic, um, you know, music that you would put into a, a, a self-playing playing piano. But he's translated and made a composition out of different data points that are used um, to help identify people who have deceased uh, on the journey. So it would be, you know, things like a photo ID, um, you know, tattoos, clothing, in an effort to try to get the body back to the family. So um, Guillermo's really, really interested, and you think, you know, he thinks like a musician, and he's really interested in code and how to translate those types of other things into more like binary mm -hmm. information. I love how just multi-layered each piece is. Everything has so many different messages and meanings, and from the material to the sound, it's just incredible. Yeah. Yeah, and just, you know, yeah, encountering somebody's used canned good from, you know, eating and... Mm -hmm. uh, Guillermo also grew up in a... Um, his family either made or sold or both pianos, so... This is the kind of inside of a piano um, incorporated into this instrument. And then he's actually classically trained. Mm -hmm. He went to the Berklee School of Music, um, but really became much more of an experimental performance artist. So this is an instrument that is actually based on um, uh, Japanese. Yeah, and then in this instrument, you can actually see there's fragments of bone, um, animal bone, but it would have been like vertebrae. And then um, these are water bottles that he found that were painted, they're painted black to avoid any kind of reflection, which would, you know, emit light and signal where people are. Um, and then other, you know, glass that you, it's just been so eroded by the environment um, and a, a Pedialyte bottle but, that he's made into a flute. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, so it's, um, I think it's a really important exhibition that, you know, this is a, an issue that it just, ever increasingly, you know, um, the last time I worked with it was the 2016 election, and then we have this election, um, and we're seeing, you know, the largest group of immigrants trying to come in, so it's just, you know, it's always, I think, a very relevant. So what made you want to bring this exhibit to the Westmoreland? Um, you know, I think 
having moved from where I was, which is, they call it the South, the high South, um, this topic I think felt a little closer to home geographically. Um, and so I think a lot of people in Southwestern Pennsylvania, what they see clips on the news, right? It just doesn't, it doesn't maybe seem relevant or everyday to them. They're nowhere near the border. Um, but it is, it's relevant to all of us. And so I just felt like, you know, art does have the capacity and the power to be able to allow people to experience things that they've never been able to imagine um, and, and to be able to kind of show all of the, the nuance and complication of dealing with, you know, such a topic. So I, I just thought that the community would really benefit from it. So. Um, and having seen it before, I just I, I knew like how powerful the images, and the sound and the whole experience would be. Yeah, I guess I was wondering if you've heard, if you've been able to notice any different or surprising reactions of there versus here. Like if you hear any kind of different reactions from people versus the Arkansas visitors. I, I haven't. Now, this exhibition's only been on view here for about a week. So, okay. you know, as, as more, new. yeah, it's pretty new. So as more visitors come through, I'm sure, especially just because they're viewing it in a different context um, in 2021. So, um, but it, it's traveled a lot of places from Missoula to, it just came to us from the Hudson River Museum. Um, it's going to Asheville, North Carolina. And, and I think, you know, a lot of people do have that same experience of just, it's a place that seems very foreign to them. And so being able to, again, imagine what that journey would be like um, and the why and um, you know, hearing the sounds of what people would be hearing on, on that journey as well. Yeah, I think the immersive qualities of the sound combined with the big photos, how can you not yeah. come away with a really strong impression that you understand it a little more than you did. Right, right. I wanted to, I guess, go back a little bit because um, I'm really, really interested in your background as the director of education and now being CEO and head of the museum. And I know that just from my experience, I have an undergraduate degree in business and I worked in marketing and a lot of nonprofit and arts organizations are looking at marketing people and all that kind of stuff to become the head of these nonprofits thinking about how can we run things like a business. Right. But as an educator, I feel like that's a very different kind of energy and purpose. Could you talk a little bit about what it means to be head of education and now the head of, head of the museum? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think in art museums, most people come through the curatorial track. So they have a, you know, extensive training in art history um, and then they move into that, that role I work with objects as intensely as a curator would in my previous role, but um, everything that we did was putting the visitor at the center, and that's definitely, I know a lot of curators who are directors who also wholeheartedly believe in that, you know, um, and we're not, we're not a business. <laughs> we're not, we're, we're a nonprofit, and I think COVID really demonstrated the danger of depending on earned income to meet your operating needs. If you can't articulate why you matter and why people should support you and really leverage you know, the philanthropy around that, 
Um, and then suddenly you have to shut your doors and you are you know, no longer getting admission fees, you're no longer getting your store, you're no longer getting your cafe sales. Um, if your membership is transactional and only used to get free entry, you know, you're really out of business. <laughs> so I think it really is more about, um, you know, for, for me and I think coming here, I really just felt like I wanted to put the community at the center and I wanted um, this institution to be part of revitalizing the area and um, a place of welcoming and inclusion. Um, you know, we've, we've seen in this area a huge population decline, um, lots of people leaving, so trying to be a, a change agent in that space. And what has been the response from the community um, over the past year since COVID and all the things that you've, you've done, a lot of different innovative things to keep people connected? What has been the community response? Uh, it's been really, really positive. So um, like lots of other institutions, we changed very quickly to virtual. That really expanded our reach. Um, so we've gotten you know, people participating in programming that are even out of state. Oh, which is great because you know we're again 35 miles outside of a metro or you know we're seen as kind of remote um, the the foundation community here has been amazing uh, in supporting organizations getting through this so um, it's been been really wonderful to see them rise to the occasion and put just as much resources behind health and human services as they as they do with the arts uh, and then and just in general, I think, you know, we decided to take the approach of how can we be of service to the community during this horrible time? Um, so everything from um, a postcard campaign to seniors who are in isolation, where we would distribute them through Meals on Wheels, to um, masking that we distributed through our little library out front, to free summer camps. So, you know, anything that we could do to keep our staff engaged and employed and also serve um, the community. I wanted to ask about that because um, I'm thinking just about the way that you are building bridges here and kind of maybe knocking down some of the barriers that people have. You talked about being 35 miles away from the metro area mm -hmm. and, th and people think, well, that's far away. So how do you create those bridges and knock down the barriers for, for people both coming to the museum, also people engaging with artists? And um, I was really interested, especially about the boom concept um, residency and how that worked and how that's working to help connect the community with the museum and, and artists. So much of it is um, partnerships, but I think a lot of it is also just being incredibly open to new opportunities when they present themselves and being ready to jump. So for example, with um, Boom Concepts, DS and Aquinique were the first artists in residence. And at the same time, I got a call from the city saying, they're getting ready to redo the Fifth Ward Park by the hospital. And they really want to have public art as a component. And could we assist with that? Well, DS has done a lot of work on play spaces and you know, interviewing youth. So he actually started interviewing area youth on what they would want to be able to see. And that's now feeding into the city plan. And then we'll actually identify an artist in residence to be a part of that. Um, public art project. So there's just kind of like synergies that are happening when you allow yourself to be open to all the possibilities. Um, with our current artist in residence, Gavin Benjamin, he actually met um, a woman who her cousins have three churches in Westmoreland County. So suddenly she's become this like 
super spreader networker <laughs> for him um, as he goes out and he um, looks for people to take part in his photographic series that he's creating here. Specifically, he's looking for um, African-American residents and immigrant residents of Westmoreland County with the goal of he really wants them to be able to see themselves in the collection. So he's got a whole, he's running around with his Polaroid taking pictures of them and then he's gonna start doing a, a casting call. And I think when you, when you create partnerships and networks like that that are authentic and that are relevant, that threshold fear of this isn't a place for me or somebody literally extending an invitation to come here and participate in something helps build those bridges. We eliminated our suggested donation fee, but that alone is not gonna just you know, bring people here if they don't feel like um, they're, they're going to feel included. Mm -hmm. So. I guess I was also, as, as thinking about the community connection, I was wondering about um, if there is, like how is the connection with the schools, like public schools around, and um, are they are they gonna be coming here for field trips in the fall, or is it kind of still a virtual thing with that? I, I, I mean, we're trying to prepare for either scenario, so, um, we actually developed a learning management system funded by a grant from RK Mellon that provides really great pre-visit content and post-visit content. And then the field trip experience can either be virtual or in person. So it'll have a nice shelf life um, beyond. And it's a way for um, a teacher to just turn key, have a, like a week's unit um, for their, their students that connects to their curriculum. Um, we, like other institutions, receive EITC funds that will pay for transportation, supplies, and things like that for public schools. And so our hope is that not just working with the Greensburg-Salem District and the Hempfield School District, which are the two closest, but really getting into some more rural um, areas in Westmoreland County that just don't have the same kind of access as you would have in an urban core, um, and partnering with them. Yeah, and, and making it be like an exceptional experience because yeah, my philosophy has always been if you're, you know, you don't have a choice to come on a field trip, you just go. And if your experience is one that is not satisfactory, you will not choose to do that in the future, so. Yeah, like how do you make it something that's not um, a punishment, but that people right. enjoy it. Right, I mean, yeah, a huge part of that is also programming, I think, so. Um, when I first came here, I, my philosophy was like, if I can get them in the parking lot, I can get them in the building. And so doing things like movie nights or, you know, an Oktoberfest outside or something to try and hook people in that maybe just wouldn't identify as a museum goer. I think we have to function in so many different things, um, just like libraries, you know, so. Yeah, and I guess one thing I was thinking of, because we just kind of went right into it, um, but for someone who's listening across the world or across the country, could you talk about what the Westmoreland Museum of American Art is? Yeah. And, where, and, what, and what Greensburg and like what, what, what the community is like? Sure, so um, the Westmoreland Museum of American Art fa was founded by a woman named Mary Martian Woods, and um, she left her estate to create a, it used to be the Westmoreland County Museum of Art. Um, no art, <laughs> she didn't leave any art to do this, um, but, but uh, did leave you know, um, uh, financial resources. So in 1959, it opened, and um, it was a you know, very traditional Georgian-style architecture. Uh, there was a wing that was put on 
in the 1960s, um, which is actually where our artists in residence work right now. And then um, Judy O'Toole uh, had a capital campaign and uh, selected an architecture firm, Inead Architects, to create this basically whole new wing, this cantilevered wing addition, which is where our temporary exhibitions are, and really just gut the entire inside, reconfigure it. So it is like having a, a, a brand new museum. Um, the American art focus really started because of the first director, Paul Chu. He started collecting American art, and he did collect some European as well, but it was just dominant, and, and then it was later decided that that would be the focus. It actually only went to 1950, though. So in 2015, we received a gift of some modern and contemporary art, which um, we decided that we would loosen the, um, the collecting dates and now collect up to contemporary. So I am just the third director in um, the community's history, and that kind of gives you a sense of the community, too. People here are longtime residents, and um, I think that's both great, and there's also a downside, too. So you have really close connections between families and between generations. But for new folks coming in, it, it, people are confused, right? Because it's just not a place that's known for that. And I think that's something um, the county is really trying to, to change so that we can have some growth in our um, demographics and bring some younger folks in and um, you know, really diversify the county so that it has a viable, a viable future. It is your quintessential you know, Rust Belt town. So when the steel industry um, left, so too did a, did a whole generation of um, people. Yeah. I know for, for me, it's, it's, I'm so Pittsburgh-centric um, when I'm in Pittsburgh, even though I travel around a lot. And so, but I've always been connected with the Westmoreland just because I've always known that it's here and right. family being and even included in the, in the collection. So um, it just feels like more and more it's becoming um, an important kind of part of the whole arts community in the region in a way that um, maybe some other museums take their space for granted. Um, I think that you're really doing some dynamic things and really reaching out to the community. And that's um, why we wanted to talk to you as well, because I think that you're doing something that's um, just a, a, a bit more dynamic and a bit more intentional. Um, and it's really interesting and, and inspiring to see. Thanks. That really means a lot. Thank yeah, you. I think this Rust Belt town is really lucky to have this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and you think about like what the resources the town does have. It has Seton Hill University. It has an incredible visual arts and performing arts campus right downtown. It has the Cultural Trust at the Palace Theater. It has this museum. I mean, and I think the population for Greensburg is around 14 or 15,000. So that's, that's just huge um, amenity to be able to have and, and then to serve the greater region as well. And so how long um, is the Bordo Cantos exhibit going to be up? And then what are you looking forward to in the next, um, I guess, next few months and, and year as we, I don't want to say post-pandemic because we're still here, yeah. but kind of like in this interesting phase and space of um, seeing what's the, next. So like soft reopening. <laughs> yeah. To, to uh, reopening. Yeah, well, so Border Cantos will be on view um, through September 5th. Some things that I'm really excited for, we're gonna actually have a culinary experience. We decided to partner with a community kitchen in Pittsburgh. 
and they're going to create um, four courses all around different you know, signature dishes from Central and South American countries. So it'll be a great opportunity for people to learn about that culture through cuisine. Um, we are really excited about our upcoming exhibition following Border Cantos, uh, Doris Lee, Simple Pleasures, which is the first major retrospective of a completely um, undervalued uh, uh, female artist. Doris Lee was able to really um, have a, a long and successful career of much more figurative works into abstraction um, over, over her life. And so that's going to be um, a wonderful exhibition that's going to travel to three other venues. And then following that, we actually have an artist in residence right now, Stephen Towns, who is at Falling Water, uh, participating in their um, residency program. We're going to have a solo exhibition of his, January 2022. And he's, I'm yeah, so <laughs> he's an amazing artist. It's guest curated by Kalolo Leckett, who's an amazing curator. Um, and this is a whole new body of work that's really all about um, that, uh, the labor uh, that African-Americans um, uh, built this country on and, and the resilience. Um, and so there, it's, it's going to be a beautiful, beautiful exhibition. No, this is what we meant by <laughs> spoiling this dynamic. It's so, so exciting. Um, how can people find what's the Westmoreland either online, social media? How, how do people find out about what's going on here? So our website is thewestmoreland.org. And so you can find about our exhibitions, our events, um, you know, uh, opportunities through that. And then we're on all of the, you know, social channels, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I'm not, I'm on Instagram a little bit. I can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> There's no uh, and sideshow. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you can follow us on all of those. Okay. And is it at the Westmoreland? Uh, yes. So Instagram's at the Westmoreland. Okay. Um, Facebook, you would just find us. And then I think Twitter's at the Westmoreland, too. Okay. So and we'll put it in the notes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is there anything that we should ask you about that we left out? Don't think so. I think, yeah, this is great. Cool. So look well, forward to it. Time out to show us around and see this amazing exhibit and this amazing museum. Thank you. And also for kicking off our summer podcast season. Yeah, our summer <laughs> season of other Pod. Yes. Awesome. Dedicated to the Westmoreland. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks. And that was the Other Border Wall podcast. Thank you for listening. We look forward to the next time we all meet. Stay tuned for more every two weeks. Thank you.